I want to talk with you today from John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And I want to talk with you specifically about fellowship, Christian fellowship. The sad reality is that not all professing believers are worthy of your trust and your fellowship. Indeed, some of the worst forms of abuse occur as a result of toxic fellowship. And the Bible teaches us to be discerning and cautious regarding with whom we fellowship. Now this means that more should be required than a simple profession of faith in order for people to gain access to your soul. In our text, Jesus models the use of discernment in determining who is worthy of personal commitment. So let's look at that text, John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Quote, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. End quote. The setting here is the Feast of Passover, the eight-day celebration and commemoration of deliverance from Egypt. And Jesus might have exploited the large crowd by soliciting support for his new ministry. He might have gathered names for a mailing list. He might have promised updates as to where and when he would be ministering next, passing out flyers, and maybe even selling his latest book on how to perform signs and wonders. Instead, we read, But Jesus did not commit himself to them. The Greek word here, translated commit, can also be translated entrust, a verb meaning to put into someone's care. It also means simply to believe, a form of which is used in verse 23, quote, many believed in his name. And John uses this word translated in his gospel as believed to represent various degrees of belief, from the first stirrings of belief within the soul leading up to full assurance. So remember, John's purpose in writing this gospel is that his readers might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they might have life through his name. John 20, verse 31. Now, it would seem, it would appear on the surface then, that that Jesus has met that purpose. These people believed in his name. John is writing as an evangelist, and as an evangelist, he wants to ensure his readers come to genuine, full, saving faith and avoid anything less. And what we discover in this gospel, beginning with our text, is that many, many people begin to believe, but fall short of saving faith. However, those same people often make it in to our fellowship. And whereas Jesus did not commit himself to those who merely profess belief, today we welcome them into our fellowship as dear saints and fellow heirs of salvation. We are so anxious to get people into our pews. We are so anxious to give the appearance of a a welcoming church that we oftentimes welcome people 
who have something less than saving belief. Let me ask, have you known people who profess to believe, and yet you discover they are mean-spirited, toxic people? Have you been in fellowship with people that leave you feeling drained and on the defensive? I've known people who profess Christ but are filled with bitterness. And then there's those people who openly commit adultery, theft, verbal abuse, all from the pulpit, from position of leadership. But then there are those who are much more subtle. There are those who appear friendly and cheerful. But something's just not right with them. It's hard to trust that they are genuine. In the case of our text, many of the people at the feast believed in his name. That is to say, they held Jesus in high regard because they saw the signs which he did. But they had not come to believe in a saving manner. Looking over to chapter 3, it would appear that even this Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel, concluded that Jesus was a, quote, teacher from God, end quote. And they sent Nicodemus to inform Jesus of their conclusion. Very familiar text, John chapter 3, 1 through 2. But that did not mean that they professed him as Messiah, let alone the incarnate Son of God. That did not mean that they believed in him in a way that John is striving for in his gospel, so that they might have life in his name. And so, when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he did not receive Nicodemus as a believer, as one of his sheep. But Jesus withheld committing himself to Nicodemus. Instead, Jesus declared to this leading Pharisee that he must be born of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. So please, mark it down. In John chapter 3, We have an example where Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus. In fact, the first seven or eight verses of chapter 3 are an elaboration, a a contextual uh, information, insight into our text today in John chapter 2. Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was a master or a teacher of Israel. And yet Jesus was not impressed with the credentials of men. And so he instead cut right to the core issue. Nicodemus must be born of the Spirit or not enter the kingdom of God. The wording of our text, John 2, 23-25, speaks to a universal condition. That is, not just the people at the feast, but to Christ's knowledge of what was in all men. John tells us that he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And back in the John chapter 3 then, later, in verse 7, Jesus shifts the conversation away from addressing only Nicodemus, and to the plural, Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. Now the ye for the King James translators, conveys the plural as opposed to the singular you or thou. 
So Jesus is saying to the whole Sanhedrin, you must be born again. It is a necessary requirement, not only for Nicodemus, but for all of Israel, and indeed for all men, and nothing short of being born of the Spirit will allow anyone to see the kingdom of God. Period. So here's a question. Are we clear on that point today with so-called seekers or visitors to our church? Do we, like Jesus, teach and preach that a person must be born of the Spirit? Or do we quickly take any sign of spiritual interest in the things of Christ, or even just the church, to indicate that they are genuine Christians and quickly make them part of our fellowship? Now let's look a little closer at what is in man. And here's the answer. What Jesus knew what was in man was a degenerate nature. I know that sounds harsh, but it's a fact. The Bible teaches it clearly. Inside of unregenerate man is a degenerate nature, the leading symptom of which is the inability to hear the truth. Now, the people at the feast could applaud signs and wonders, but they could not hear the truth. For evidence of this, we can need look no further than John 3.11, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. There's another testimony to the fact that Jesus was speaking, he was witnessing to what the Father had shown him, and he did not, people did not receive his witness. Jesus continues to speak in the plural, and so his words are to the whole of the religious body of Israel. You all receive not our witness. So Jesus came into the world as light, and he came to bear witness to the light of heavenly things, things of the Father. But the degenerate nature of man could not allow for them to receive his word. This is the chief issue, therefore, for the unregenerate, the inability to hear and continue in Christ's teaching. They may join your church. They may get involved in activities. They may be regular givers. They may even look to be involved in ministry. But they still retain and lack this inability to hear and continue in Christ's teaching. They still retain that unregenerate symptom of the inability to hear the truth. This is one reason why many churches have simply just stopped teaching and preaching the truth. Their, their purpose is to maintain the budget. Their purpose is to maintain the, uh, the appearances of success. I'm telling you, if you're a young man in a new church and you have a district supervisor, or you have a board of elders to whom you are accountable, you are working hard to prove yourself to be a success. You are hard, you're working hard to get people in the pews and show them to be happy. And that's not the goal. That's not the purpose. But that becomes the goal. And it may even just appear, well, we have to do both. We have to get people in the pew, and we have to make them happy. We have to keep them here rather than going to the church down the street. And we can tell them the truth, too. Well, that doesn't always work out well. 
It didn't work out for Jesus. It didn't work out well for Paul. It didn't work out for the rest of the apostles. And it hasn't worked out for many of the saints throughout the ages. Let me look closer here. There is this further evidence of fallen man's inability to hear the truth in chapter 5 of John, where Jesus tells the religious authorities, quote, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me, that you might have life. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed in me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how will you believe my words? End quote. That's John chapter 5, verse 38 through 47. These are people who search the scriptures. They know that in them they have eternal life. The eternal life is found within the truth of the scriptures. And the scriptures testify to Jesus. And yet they would not come to him. That they might have life. They even read Moses. The Pharisees considered themselves disciples of Moses. But they didn't read Moses rightly. For had they read Moses rightly, they would have believed in Jesus. For he wrote, Moses wrote of Jesus. But if you believe not his writings, said Jesus, how will you believe my words? Let me give you one more example. Chapter 8 of John's Gospel. Jesus tells another group of religious leaders who profess belief in him that continuing in his word is the test of true discipleship and the means by which one finds freedom from sin. But these newly professed believers protested. They protested against that any need for freedom. After all, they were good religious Jews. They were Abraham's seed. While well, the encounter between them and Jesus escalated. At verse 43, we begin to read with Jesus speaking, quote, Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources or nature. For he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear, because you are not of God. End quote. Just John eight forty three through 47 Jesus tells these people that they do not hear him, they do not hear God's words because they are not of God. Now that harkens back to John chapter 1, verse 12 in the prologue. Go all the way back to John chapter 1 when we read, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. 
who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let me say that last line again. Nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. These religious leaders in John chapter 8 had everything going for them on the surface, but they couldn't hear the truth. They couldn't receive Jesus' words. They couldn't hear God's words because they were not born of God. So what we're discovering here is that there are people who believe in Jesus and yet have not been born of God. These people in our text professed belief in Jesus. In John chapter 5 and John chapter 8, these same people could not continue in his word because they were not of God. Their spiritual parentage was the devil and not God. Those are hard words. On the surface, they appear harsh. But Jesus wasn't speaking harshly. He was speaking with compassion and he was speaking with concern. He was speaking with clarity. He was speaking the truth. But because of their spiritual parentage, being of the devil, they could not hear the truth precisely because it is the truth. Their minds were distorted by their degenerate nature to believe the lie, not the truth. Think of that. The unregenerate mind is so twisted so as to believe the lie and reject the truth. So here we learn this imperative. For anyone to hear the truth and then continue in Christ's teaching requires a change of nature, not a mere profession of belief in Jesus. How many people stand in front of the church and make an open profession of faith in Jesus Christ? How many people stand in the baptismal font, near the baptismal font or in the baptismal tub, and profess Jesus? But they are not born of God. And these people were not born of God. So what is it that Jesus knew was in man? And what was it that he did not commit himself to them? What, what, for what reason, I should say, did he not commit himself to them? Well, we just said it, didn't we? A degenerate nature was in them, as evidenced by their inability to hear and obey his word. And that is the problem with many so-called almost Christians in our churches today as well. By almost Christian, I mean, I'm referring back, of course, to Acts chapter 26 and King Agrippa in the book of Acts, who, after listening to Paul's conversion testimony, replied, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. The difference then was that Paul did not lower the biblical requirements for conversion to meet Agrippa, as would have happened today. Well, we need to meet the king where he is. He'll come along later. No, that's not what Paul did. He held to his standard for conversion. And King Agrippa remained an almost Christian. It is though today we would say, Oh, okay, King Agrippa, almost is good enough. Come join our church 
and we will help you come to a saving faith later. Now we have millions who have come into the church on some basis, therefore, other than the hearing of faith by the Spirit. And here is the sobering truth of our text. Jesus does not commit himself to them today any more than he did to those in our text. Let me say that again. Jesus does not commit himself to these almost Christians any more than he did to those in our text. This means that there are millions of churchgoers today for whom Jesus does not commit himself. Is it possible, therefore, to enjoy a religious heritage and be very observant in one's tradition and yet not have genuine fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely. The Lord Jesus is not obligated to accept our religious overtures. Remember, we come to him on his terms, not our own. And after 50 years of well-intended but fallacious seeker-sensitive evangelism, we have succeeded only in filling pews with almost Christians. So amidst the epidemics of our society, violence, drugs, immorality, political and business corruption, we also have this loss of truth within the churches. The salt has lost its savor. And we must acknowledge this tragic reality And we must detach and contain our commitment for the sake of our own mental and spiritual health and that of our families. We must never forget our Lord's warning in Matthew chapter 7, where he declares to very religious people, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work lawlessness. Matthew 7, 23. (coughs) To quote here from the King James, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Iniquity carries with it the meaning of a premeditated sin, planned and determined lawlessness. Jesus did not reject people for their weaknesses. Jesus did not reject people for their occasional stumbling or struggling with sin. He was, after all, the friend of sinners. But he did reject those pretending to be his followers while continuing to act out in premeditated evil. So what did Jesus do? Well, in our text, he remained detached and contained from them. By this I mean he did not open up his soul to them, but turned away from them and thus contained his exposure to them. And so must you. Two very important words for every follower of Christ, especially during these perilous times, are detach and contain. By this, I mean you must be discerning and selective as to whom you commit yourself in fellowship. Let me say that again. You must be discerning and selective as to whom you commit yourself in fellowship. Sometimes the churches offer many social benefits, many uh, opportunities to feel belong, to feel that you belong, and even entertained. 
There's value in that. Don't get me wrong. It's just not fellowship. If you're single, you might find somebody else. You might find a, a, a spouse in one of these churches. If you're lonely, you might find a surrogate family in one of these churches. If you're bored, you may find certain entertainment and activities within one of these churches. But you must be wise as to those to whom you entrust your spiritual health. A man once told me, speaking of his untrustworthy trustworthy friends, he said, they would steal your billfold then help you look for it. Listen, profound betrayal and deceit followed Jesus around all the time. And it followed him around under the guise of religious inquiry, even among his own disciples. And this profound betrayal of gospel truth and deception as to what it means to be a Christian remains at work today within Christendom on a wholesale basis. Therefore, like Jesus... You must never entrust your minds and souls to people simply because they profess to believe in Jesus. Instead, be biblically informed about what is in fallen man. and Be selective in granting relational access. In her book, Good Boundaries and Goodbyes, Lisa, I'm going to have a hard time with her last name here, Turkurst, it looks like, offers this point of wisdom. Quote, Love can be unconditional, but relational access never should be. End quote. There's nothing about unconditional love that tells us to be foolish, to be naive. Unconditional love has nothing to do with granting anyone, everywhere, anytime, relational access. What Lisa has given us here is a good description of what Jesus models for us here in this text. It was love that sent Jesus into the world. But love did not mean relational access to those who simply professed belief in him that day. Something more was necessary. Well, let me close by just saying that in chapter 10 of John's Gospel, we discover those who are his sheep and are given to him by the Father. And these Jesus reveals or commits himself to. He says, in, for instance, in John ten fourteen, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. End quote. They hear his voice, and he knows them, and they follow him. John 10, 22-30 tells us, He gives them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of his hand. So, in our times, discerning who to commit yourself to in fellowship is a matter for serious prayer and discernment. We all need and want fellowship, and it is God's will that we belong in community. But we must follow our Lord's example as to whom we commit ourselves. We're looking to be amongst Christ's sheep. And, beloved, there always has been, there is today, and there always will be plenty of goats mixed in with the flock. The good news is that the Bible provides us a lot of helpful direction 
as to how to recognize those we should mark and avoid. And in the next lesson, we will examine these things more closely. Amen.